Once upon a time, in a land far away, I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. Woo Yeah. Happy for you to be joining us for Katrina's first episode that she's doing while high on drugs. <laughs> only, only a little bit of prescription narcotics. Which is what our lawyers informed us to tell you. I have messed up my back, but... That's no excuse not to record an episode. Yeah. <laughs> so since I cannot sit up in a chair to record the podcast, I am currently on the floor of my office <laughs> laying down in it's... such an interesting setup. But I've I've never been closer to my books or my bookshelf. She may just decide to podcast like this from now on. Yeah, it's very comfy. I'm just just chilling out, living yeah. my best life. So while it may be her first episode on drugs, it is not mine. As you know, I am on drugs for every episode of this podcast, which our lawyers would also like me to tell you as a joke. Also, because Katrina is high on drugs, she cannot be trusted to keep our episode on track. So this is also a jeff episode. Yay, Jeff! And for this jeff episode, I've decided to fulfill a promise that was made long ago, which was that we would do an entomology, etymology, mythology episode yes which it's been so long i can't even remember when or why or how entomology etymology mythology came up oh i can but katrina will (laughs) remind me okay now that i say that i'm like what i'm pretty sure it was we were doing the live that was the frogs episode Mm -hmm. and at some point during that episode we were talking about names of animals or something in greek mythology and we had joked that we could do an etymology entomology episode or something and then when we mm-hmm. actually started talking about it we were like oh yeah no we actually could that oh that actually sounds like a good idea yeah what started as just like a play on words that would be fun we realized would actually make for an episode because there are in fact bug name origin story tales that come from like mythology like Bugs that are named after mythological creatures or have some connection to it. We had to stretch a little bit, I'm not going to lie. But there are some that are like hardcore, for a fact, like direct lineage from mythology or folklore to the name of a bug. And thus, entomology, etymology, mythology. So to start us off, we're going to have Katrina retell us the ancient Greek story of Arachne. So I am going to be retelling the story of Arachne from the metamorphoses, the metamorphoses, metamorphoses. I have always struggled with how you're supposed to say that. Because I think I heard one person at one point say metamorphoses. That I'm pretty sure is wrong. And it sounded so wrong that I was like, it must be right. Right. I I know what you're saying, though. And ever since then, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just like the Greek way of saying it. I'm going to be retelling the story of Arachne from The Metamorphoses by Ovid. It is in book six because it's divided up into different stories. And this one is just the beginning of book six. So there was once a woman named Arachne, and she was the daughter of a shepherd. 
and different stories, kind of like the dad has like different stuff going on, depending on if they want to claim that people's kids are important down the line or whatever. Neither here nor there for our story. But he was a shepherd. He apparently was famous for his purple dye, which was, you know, important for making important people's clothes. She kind of already had this background of dealing with, you know, spinning and fabric. And in some tales, Arachne is credited with inventing linen, which is not from sheep. That's from plant fibers. Mm, Yeah. But anyway. And that's why it gets so wrinkly. Is because it's made of plant fibers. Yeah. Yeah, I thought you meant because it was made by Arachne. (laughs) Because it was made by Arachne and she doesn't know what she's (laughs) doing. No. I was like, that's some really weird shade you're throwing, Jeff. No, it's because it's like, I mean, look, you take a piece of like a wool blanket and you like crunch it up into a ball and then throw it and then you like pull it out and it's like, oh, wow, it's like relatively wrinkly free, wrinkle free, (laughs) relatively wrinkle free. Um, You do that with linen. Those wrinkles are there. And you do that with a piece of paper and those wrinkles are definitely there. And that's, you know, linen is to paper as cloth is to wool. Or something. All right. But that's pretty interesting because I wonder like when was linen discovered and or invented? And does that actually make sense that Arachne would be the one to do it? Or was it just kind of like something that somebody made up? And so we just go with it. Well, I think considering like this story is is part of mythology because it's part of all those like creation stories, including Mm. the creation of like textiles and stuff. So a lot of these legendary figures are credited with like being inventors of stuff that's, you know, turned them into culture heroes. Right. And it probably has to do with some of these things were invented so long ago, like the wheel or fire. The wheel of cheese. Do you remember when you and I were like, oh my gosh, I do remember that. We're like, oh, how old, how long ago were wheel of cheese around? And it was like, oh, guess what? A very long time. Yeah. It basically was like at least 7,000 years, something like that. And you and I were like, like, wait, what? (laughs) Did not expect that. But so, but the point is, Lots of these things, no one knows who invented it. And so yeah. they're like, well, someone had to have. And it's this huge, life-changingly big thing that someone discovered and or invented or whatever, harnessed the power of, that they're like, of course, it must have come from a god. And, you, you know, talk about like Prometheus speaking of fire and all sorts of other things. Yeah. So it's like, it must have been a very old, that's, my guess is it's a very, very old thing because they're attributing it to, you know, yeah. a god. Yeah, like a legendary figure. But it's just because they don't, it, it, and it could have come from another culture that came into somewhere else. And it's like, they just don't know where it came from. And it's just always been around. I I don't know. And anyway, continue. Yeah. I apologize. So anyway, Arachne was getting pretty famous all around her town for being an amazing weaver. And it's interesting because the story kind of goes out of its way to say that there was nothing else about her that would have gained her fame, <laughs> which I'm like, that's okay. Rude. Lady had nothing going for her, but her skills at weaving. Yeah. Cause they basically were like, she was low born. She didn't have a famous rich or important husband. She lived in a humble home and she didn't even live in a city. She lived out in the hamlets. Mm. I mean, they don't say, and she was ugly to boot, but kind of like the fact that they're not talking about her having any like Physical beauty either, to me, kind of signifies that, like, there was nothing uh, remarkable about Arachne besides her ability to weave. Hmm. She apparently was so incredible at weaving that even the nymphs would come out of, like... (laughs) 
the water and out of the wood to watch her as she was weaving. Which we want to make sure on our podcast that we do not fall victim to nymph erasure. Yes. That's a... That's just a little little shout out to our friends over at uh, Not My Fantasy Podcast. They're on that Nymphy Razor soapbox constantly. Yep. And you know what? We support it because nymphs are pretty cool and pretty interesting. And they really do get like overlooked in a lot of these stories and as they evolve and are retold in various versions. It's like, come on, keep the nymphs alive. So we are doing our part. Yes. Don't erase nymphs. If they pop up in a story, no matter what they're doing, give them a shout out. Yeah. You know what? Give them like a a cute name and like something really like quirky and fun about them (laughs) that just like is added on just to further emphasize and make them memorable. That's what I say we should do with the nymphs. Absolutely. So these nymphs would come out and they would be watching Arachne while she was weaving because she was just so graceful that it was just a wonder just to watch her work. And one of these nymphs' name was Josie, and she had a monocle. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for following your own advice. I appreciate that. I was hoping you would, but I was ready to step in (laughs) when you let me down. I wasn't going to add anything into the story that, like, wasn't there, but I appreciate you doing that. Great. Mission accomplished. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. So, Josie and her monocle. I thought you were going to say that she had a pussycat, (laughs) just because when I hear Josie, that's what I think of, but... Yeah. I almost named her Daphne, but I was like, Daphne's like a Greek something or other, and I didn't want it to be confusing. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that is confusing. I'm glad that you still stuck in the same, like, cartoon time period realm for names, though. Because Daphne was inspired by Scooby-Doo. Yeah. That's why it came to mind. Josie and the Pussycats, I'm assuming. Because when I think of a nymph, I think of Daphne. All right. That is just a little glimpse into your psyche. Psyche, also a Greek character. So, um... Oh my gosh. Sorry. What happened? Daphne is a nymph. (laughs) Daphne. It was right there. Oh my gosh. Daphne, a minor figure in Greek mythology, is a naiad, a variety of female nymph associated with fountains, wells, springs, streams, brooks, and other bodies of fresh water. If it says that Daphne had a monocle, I'm going to eat (laughs) my microphone. (laughs) It just is like, known for having poor eyesight, she... (laughs) I have not, nor do I have any faith that anything about a monocle will appear in this article, but I cannot believe that that happened. Like, I must have known that somehow in my brain. Yeah, somewhere deep down in your psyche, you knew that Daphne was a water nymph. Sorry, but I'm glad I didn't say Daphne because then that would have been like like claiming that this actual, you know, minor figure in Greek mythology was at this other thing, which has not been verified to be true, but it could be. It is. And now in our mind, she has a monocle and she's there. That's just facts now. This story can be anything we want it to be. <laughs> That's the power of Percocet. Amen. <laughs> so it didn't matter whether Arachne was working with the roughest yarn or the finest fleece. Everything that she touched turned to gold. (laughs) (laughs) How many Greek mythological stories can we weave into one? What's funny is like how much I think we don't realize how often like phrases like that come from like stories of Greek mythology. Oh, yeah. And so, hey, we should do an episode that's about, uh, no, (laughs) no, no more episodes about anything. (laughs) Greek idioms. For idiots. Yep. Greek idioms for idiots. Our next bonus episode. 
So it didn't matter whether she was using the roughest yarn or the finest fleece. Everything that she created always came out magnificently beautiful. She could be embroidering with a needle or working with her spindle. It didn't matter. Anything fabric, she got you incredible, magical, just beyond compare. So people often, when they were talking about her craft, would say, oh, you can tell that she's been taught by Athena herself how to weave. Mm. And Arachne always took this very poorly because she was like, (laughs) no, Athena hasn't done anything for me. I'm talented. I'm doing it myself. I don't want a goddess to get the credit for something that I am doing. Yeah, like all the hard work that she put in to practicing and perfecting her craft. Yeah, don't say, oh, I bet... I bet she was taught how to do that by a goddess. No, I was taught how to do this by myself. I'm incredible. Don't be like giving away accolades to somebody who's not even here. Which I'm like, yeah, girl, stand up for yourself. But also, (laughs) we, having read a Greek mythological story before, (laughs) know that this is not the makings for a smooth life. No. For Arachne. Absolutely not. And she was even heard to say... Let her but strive with me, and if I lose, there is nothing which I would not forfeit. Mm, mm, which, mm, yeah, mm, mm, mm. oh, don't don't challenge them to, like, a battle of skill. You know what's a great idea? To tempt the gods, <laughs> said no one ever, except Arachne, apparently. Yeah, it's, it's worked out well for everybody all the time <laughs> this happens. Yeah. Oh, man. And so, of course... Athena hears about this and is not pleased, you would say. So she decides that she's going to disguise herself in the form of an old woman. And this part of the story has some major Beauty and the Beast, like the the movie, Mm. (laughs) of like, you know, this magical person enchanting themselves to look like an old lady, like a stranger, with this like kind of intent of... Yeah, deceiving them and then punishing them. (laughs) So Athena assumes the form of an old woman and it says, put false locks of gray upon her head, took a staff in her hand to sustain her tottering limbs, and thus she began. Which is a side note. I was watching a video that was uh, done by the former chief of disguise for the CIA that talked about how like with disguises, you can never take anything away. You can only add things, which like, mm. you know, Athena is doing so far, like adding the gray locks on herself, making her look older. Cause that's another thing. Like adding age is something that you can do effectively, but taking age away, like making yourself look younger, isn't super successful. Also a tip when you're trying to disguise yourself is to change your gait or the way that you walk, which Athena is also doing by incorporating the walking stick. Like this is, by the book, how the CIA tells you that you should disguise yourself. So Athena's getting an A thus far. Yeah. Lessons from Jeff on how to disguise yourself. This is a subterfuge podcast. (laughs) Did I pronounce that word correctly? Kind of, but you slurred it because you're on drugs. It's a subterfuge. It's a fuselage. Gotta be into superlodge. (laughs) This is Subterfuge and Spycraft with Jeff. So Athena has disguised herself. And she went to Arachne in this like old woman disguise and said, do not scorn my advice. Seek all the fame you will among mortal men for handling wool, but yield place to the goddess and with humble prayer, beg her pardon for your words, reckless girl. Wow. And Athena 
It says that Arachne, not Athena, Arach, it says that Arachne regarded the old woman, dropped the thread she was working, and scarce holding her hands from violence. Like, ma'am, were you going to throw hands with an old woman? Like, what was your plan? Had you not gray locks upon your head and a staff to help you walk, I would slap the taste out of your mouth. <laughs> That's a direct quote from Ovid. <laughs> I wish. That'd be hilarious. Where do we think that saying came from? <laughs> if not Greek and Roman mythology. Yeah. They had taste back then. I almost guarantee it. Yeah, until it got slapped right out of them. <laughs> So Arachne said to what she thought was this old woman, doting in your mind, you're coming to me spent with old age. (laughs) I'm like, oh my gosh. And she was like, if you have something that you want to say, go tell it to your daughter-in-law or your daughter, but I'm not having any of this. (laughs) Which like, okay, to be fair, uh, you know what? I was going to say, to be fair, I was going to side with Arachne, but not really. I mean- like that lady, if it were not Athena in disguise, was like doing you a favor by trying to like protect you from the wrath of Athena. Yeah. Like sometimes old ladies be saying stuff and all you have to do is just ignore them. Just be like, okay, lady. Because right. like, I right. don't know if anybody else has experienced older women just coming up to you in public and like giving you life advice for free that is like neither here nor there. I always get frustrated whenever old ladies want to come up to me and give me like parenting advice because usually their parenting advice, not usually, like I sometimes their parenting advice is like highly suspect. Uh, like if you, if your kid is, is hurting teething, just dip their pacifier in some rum and it'll solve that problem right away. Yeah. But like, that's usually like, or the parenting advice of like, oh yeah, anytime my kid was crying in public, I would just beat him until then. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Not helpful, but I, you know, I don't say to them, like, if you're gonna talk to somebody, why don't you go talk to your daughters or daughter in laws? I just am right. like, okay, and I wait for them to leave, and then I, and then I get on my podcast and I talk about them behind their back <laughs> like an adult. What if they listen to our podcast? <laughs> just kidding. So, in this story, yeah, she basically is like, like, if you have something to say, go home and say it to your daughter in laws. Why does not your goddess come herself? Why does she avoid oh. a contest with me? Which is like, oh, foo-foo. Arachne, no. But that is interesting because it is one of those things, too, where it's like, you know, it, like, why did Athena go down in this disguise to say this? Was she trying to let Arachne save face? Or was it like, was she testing her in some way? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't think, a, th- I think both of these parties are kind of in the wrong in this situation. I mean, you know what I mean? I feel like she was offering her a chance to take it back or to kind of say like, hey, you're taking this a step too far. Maybe, maybe pull back on that in a way that is like, I don't know, I think less confrontational because right. if she had showed up as her, I mean, and it <laughs> like, is. I heard you were talking smack. Yeah. Because it's like if I heard, that, you know, that you were saying that you were better at weaving than me, Jeff, I would just show up in front of you and be like, take it back right now. Apologize to me this moment. And that's a little more like threatening than if like your wife yeah. turned to you and was like, hey, you're not right. Yeah. Like, hey, you might want to consider yeah. telling Katrina that you're not better uh, at weaving than her. Cross stitch yeah. than her. Because it's true. Yeah, I see that. Uh, I do see that. I mean, that. but at the same time, like, it it also is this test in that yeah. she is saying, I want to see you apologize. Right. And Arachne 
responded in absolutely the worst possible way. Yeah, to to make Athena happy, yeah. But yeah. I also contest that, like, was she wrong? Mm, that's a good point. We'll see Let's find during out. the contest. <laughs> so after Arachne, it was basically like, why is she avoiding a contest with me if she's so great? Uh, the goddess threw off her old woman's disguise. Oh, just right just there. Just right there. And was like, she has come. <laughs> Let's go down. And immediately the nymphs started worshiping Athena because, you know, yeah. she's a goddess. So, Because nymphs know what's up. They're yeah. like, oh, man. Like there we got Daphne and Josie were like, uh, I'm going to pop off my monocle for a second and bow down to this queen. <laughs> they know the way that these stories go. They've been around in the periphery or involved, but in the stories not mentioned uh, enough to be like, okay, like this is not going to go in the mortal's favor pretty much ever. So let's put our weight behind the winning horse. Yeah. So it says that, you know, immediately everybody who is like in the area, all the town people, all these names, everybody immediately like stopped what they were doing to like worship Athena and be like, oh, you're amazing. And it said Arachne alone remained unafraid. Mm. I love that, that she was just like, yeah, okay, so what? <laughs> you're a goddess. That don't impress me much. Ah. <laughs> 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 I love this line uh, as they were kind of getting ready for the contest. It says, still she persisted in her challenge and stupidly confident and eager for victory. She rushes on her fate. So, yeah, just she was so sure that she was right and mm -hmm. like ready to prove it that it was like she just was going confidently, strongly forward, like unafraid. Which, listen, there's something to be said for that, that like level of confidence where you're like, you're yeah. not even entertaining the idea that you're wrong. Yeah. And I will continue to contend that she was not wrong. Right. But sometimes it doesn't matter <laughs> if you're wrong or not. So they both set up their looms in different places so that they could, you know, have kind of like an audience of people watching them as they worked. And like a side note that I just think is so interesting, because we've talked about weaving before on the podcast, mm -hmm. things that are really, really important to like historians and anthropologists are stories like this one from Ovid, where they go into detail talking about how the loom was set up because so often some of these like day-to-day -day tasks, these arts and crafts, how they get done for the most part gets lost to history, like the skills right. leave. And so it's important to yeah. have these like written records where they can kind of look at those and say, oh, now we know exactly like how this was done or not exactly, but at least we have mm -hmm. some idea of how they were constructing what they were using. I won't get super into it, but it, it does talk about the weave and the warp, which is the two different directions that the the mm -hmm. fibers go and just how reeds were used to separate the threads of the warp. I guess it's the woof. So they both set up their looms and started to get to work. And it's interesting because, yeah, it talks about like the reed separates the teeth of the warp. The woof is threaded through them by the sharp shuttles, which their busy fingers ply. And so just like talking about like how the weaving takes place. Zip, zip through the pounding the fibers to make sure that they're tight. And they were just like working crazy and people were watching them 
just, you know, enthralled of the magic that was coming out of their fingers, basically, because they were forming, not only were they just like weaving something, but they were weaving pictures into what they were making. So they describe what Athena made first, and she was depicting different stories from well-known stories of the gods. Right in the center of what she was making was a depiction of her, Athena, versus Poseidon, because and, and their battle for the city of Athens, because one of them was going to be the patron god of the city. Both mm. of them wanted that city, and Poseidon had given a saltwater fountain as a gift, and Athena had given an olive tree as a gift, and the people had ultimately chosen Athena over Poseidon. And so that was in the middle. And then the stories that she was showing depictions of around that were stories of human hubris uh, versus the gods and how it had turned out for them, including uh, two (laughs) mortals who had been turned into mountains. Geomythology. Geomythology. There was also a story of when Hera or Juno depending on, you know, Greek, Roman names, you understand. When she got pregnant with Michael Sarah's baby and like the guy at the gas station said like, that's one etch a sketch you can't undo, home skillet. Yes, that Juno. <laughs> if I was a flower grown small and free, I wanted you to be my sweet honeybee. All right, that's enough of that song before we get cease and desist letter from whoever holds the rights of that song. So there was another story that was depicting like a woman who had kind of gone up against Hera or Juno and been changed into a crane. <laughs> huh. I don't know why I was like, I was like, oh, dang. And I was like, wait, actually, you know, a crane, that's kind of nice. But I mean, I think I would rather be a human than a crane. Yeah. And I guess there was also another, a, another story that was depicted. Again, it was Hera changing another woman into like a bird. Foreshadowing. Yeah. She's like, look, I bested Poseidon in a contest and he's also like a god. And look at what happened when all these humans did things. They lost and they got yeah. turned into some kind of creature. What do you think this person who could beat Poseidon, another god, is going to do to this puny human with the hubris who thinks she can challenge me? Yeah, that was like exactly what she was getting at. Because it was like, and then like the fourth one was a picture of a man crying because his daughters had been turned into like stone pillars. And then it says, the goddess then wove around her work a border of peaceful olive wreath. (laughs) Meanwhile, Arachne's weaving a middle finger just pointed straight at Athena's face. (laughs) Essentially. So Arachne also decided that she was going to capture um, stories of the gods, except the stories that she decided to weave were stories such as when Zeus disguised himself as a bull and kidnapped Europa. Mm. And it said that the bull and the waves were so exquisitely weaved that it appeared that they were moving, that like the bull was snorting in rage and that the waves themselves were billowing like on the tapestry. That's how fine her craft was. So the others were other stories of women who had been like kidnapped 
or raped, assaulted by Zeus, and had then been tortured by Hera. And stories of Apollo and how he had disguised himself in different ways so that he could rape and assault women. Then Poseidon, who had also disguised himself so that he could rape and assault women. And she made this tapestry of all of these different stories of, you know, them being disguised as dolphin and gold and all these things. And just doing terrible things. Yeah. And then it says the edge of the web, like of her weaving, the edge of the Mm -hmm. web with its narrow border is filled with flowers and clinging ivy interweaved, which I love that they included the borders. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for both of them. But it's also interesting. Yeah. I love how they said, pointed out that she had very narrow borders because she had filled hers mm. so much with like other with things. So much yeah. detail. Yeah. So Athena, it said, not Athena nor Envy himself could find a flaw in her work. Wow. That's like Athena could not. Athena could not. So like Athena like kind of even had to admit herself like. Yeah. Dang. That it's like, had Athena made an amazing tapestry? Yes. But Arachne had made a much better one. Mm -hmm. And not only had she made a much better one where it appeared like you could feel the feelings of the people who were in them. Like you could see the anguish and feel the anguish on the faces of these women. You could Mm -hmm. see the movement and the birds and the waves and like everything. Like her masterpiece was so exquisitely beautiful and so moving that Athena herself had to admit that like it was better. But did she? Did she admit that it was better? Hmm. No, she did not. Of course not. What she did was take the tapestry, completely rip it apart in front of everybody. Oh, dang. And then she took Arachne's shuttle uh, that she had been using and started to like beat her with it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and in the story, this doesn't quite make sense to me. Like the the series of events, probably because I don't live in a time where like I would, you know, feel so ashamed that I'd made something so amazing that a goddess beat me with my own tools. <laughs> <laughs> but in the story, it says that, you know, she, Arachne, being made to feel ashamed, went to hang herself. And in some stories, it's only after she hangs herself that Athena decides to, it's painted different ways. Sometimes it's painted as like a reward. And then other times Uh it's painted as like a punishment. Right. It's like, you can't escape this shame by killing yourself. Yeah. I'm going to make it so that you survive and further compound your shame. Or it's, oh, no. Your punishment shouldn't be so bad that you lose your life. I'm going to allow you to live on. And to do the thing that you love to do. (laughs) I am going to go ahead and call it a punishment. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Because it says in the story that Arachne was so ashamed that she went to hang herself. And after she had hung herself, Athena was like, no, death is not good enough for you. I want you to live on and be punished. And so she says, dripped the poison of Hecate onto Arachne. And how they describe her body changing, metamorphosizing, uh, if you will, is super fascinating to me. She So she poured the poison onto Arachne's hair and it said that her hair at once, touched by the poison, fell off. And then also her nose and ears, her head shrank up. Oh. Her whole body also was diminished. 
The slender fingers clung to her side as legs. The rest was belly. Still from this, she ever spins a thread. And now, as a spider, she exercises her old-time weaver's art. I did not like that description. No, like how her... Like thin fingers stick to her side. Like she, like her body is shrinking, but her like fingers don't shrink as much as the rest of her body. So they like stick to her side and become legs. But it's like her hands that then become legs. But that also is kind of interesting too, because it's like one, the amount of hand, fingers that you have on a hand. If you put them together, it kind of looks like you could be spidery. But then also, you know, she used her hands to weave. And then now that she's a spider, she's using her legs, which are her fingers, which are her hands now to weave yeah i did not like (laughs) the description of like her ears fell off her nose fell off and then her fingers turned into the spider legs and yeah it was just gross and disgusting it was like watching that jeff goldblum like movie where he turns into a fly just body horror not my favorite genre by a long shot so for me some of the things that are so frustrating in this story is that like arachne was right Like, she obviously, she would know whether or not she had been taught by Athena. Like, if she had been taught by Athena, I'm sure she would have been like, oh, I was taught by Athena, but I exceeded my master. You know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Which is still a brag that, you know, might turn into needing to be, you know, put down or whatever. Yeah. But she wasn't. She wasn't taught by Athena. And so when people were like, oh, she must have been taught by Athena. And she was like, no, I wasn't. This is my skill. And then when she went up against Athena and she was better so much so that like Athena was like, I hate you. And then not only was she so much better, but what she wove was essentially the truth to say Mm -hmm. gods are despicable. They're like, they're not worth worshiping. Do you know why mm-hmm. I won't admit that Athena is better at me than weaving? It's because she's not. Not only is she not, is I don't think that she deserves to be worshipped, and neither do these other gods. And yeah. so it was like, it's so much more than just like her hubris that was being punished. Right. It was her basically being punished for pointing out the truth. Yeah, I like that. I like that interpretation of it a lot. And I agree. I can agree with that. And it's like she's making a statement because my initial reaction is to be like, like, I agree with you that no matter what, Arachne is right. Yeah. And like of the two people, even under the assumption that they're both behaving badly in some way, like Athena is behaving much more badly than Arachne. Yeah. There's a part of me that wants to argue. The definition that I like of confidence is where you're, you know, you're like stating the facts. Like, I can do this. This is what I can do. Without exaggeration, but just because like you know that you can do it, which is what Arachne yeah. is doing. But I do feel like, you know, she does, and it's purposeful and intentional, I think, because like as you pointed out, she's like trying to make a statement about the gods and why she has these like strong feelings towards them, you know. It's all like tied into one. But in, in other circumstances, I think there is a way to be confident and still be like kind of humble, you know, about it. But the factor that changed my mind in this story is what you brought up, which is These gods are constantly bullying mortals for behaving the way that these gods behave, like not even as bad, you know, like the gods are constantly, Athena shows off her own hubris in the thing that she weaved Yeah, in that, like she shows, I beat Poseidon, look at all these gods and how much better we are than human beings. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Like she put herself into her painting. Like it's not like Arachne like weaved herself beating Athena or whatever the case may yeah. be. It was like she, just, like you said, just weaved the truth. And so did so did Athena. But Athena was like, look at me. Look how great I am. I'm the best. Yeah. You know, like I beat, I beat Poseidon. Yeah. And it kind of shows how like out of touch she was too with like her audience. I mean, kind of, because like the point that she was trying to make was like, anytime somebody thinks they're better than the gods, look what we've done to them. Except that the right. audience is also being shown by Arachne. Look what they do to us. Yeah. Like, even without us being full of hubris or whatever, you know. Then Athena's tapestry on accident shows how out of touch she is with, like, the humans because she basically weaves something that'd be like, oh, yeah, look how we treat you. Not realizing that it's like, yeah, and that's bad. Yeah. And that was like a brilliant move on the part of Arachne too. Like, I don't know how if it, like how intentional it was. I mean, obviously this story is like a story that is constructed for a purpose. Yeah. So, but like the fact that she's continuing, like she's building on what Athena is weaving. Like the story builds on itself. So it's like, not only it's like, oh, here's one thing and here's another thing. And they're like two opposing viewpoints or whatever. Yeah. It's like, no, she's literally doing the same thing, but showing like another side of it to show more of the full picture, the true picture. It's like the gods are looking for an excuse to do bad things to us. Yeah. And one of the ones that they use is hubris. Like even when, as Arachne proves, like our quote unquote hubris is not hubris. It's just confidence because we know what we're capable of and we're not afraid to say that. So I'm like, I'm, I'm 100% team yeah. Arachne now. So... One thing that I also think is interesting is that, you know, since this story is written by like Ovid and you said like, you know, these stories are like written for a purpose. Sometimes in stories, because we talk on the podcast about, oh, like the who the winners are reflects like cultural values. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the opposite is true where yeah. the person who wins is to incite the audience into realizing like how unjust that is Yeah, where it is like they could read the, that story or hear that story and realize that they weren't rooting for Athena, that they weren't rooting for mm -hmm. the God and that with her attacking Arachne for being right for being better is so unjust that it leaves the audience thinking about how unjust that is. Yeah. And Ovid, not necessarily writing about a Greek relationship with God or Roman relationship with God, but about everyday people and their relationship with authority. Mm -hmm. This story being unjust at the end leaves an audience of everyday people feeling like, do the people who I worship deserve to be worshipped? Mm -hmm. Including local authorities, even like local government. Like right. at what point does my government, if it is hurting me, still deserve to be worshipped? Yeah. At what point do my religious leaders deserve to be followed? And at what point mm -hmm. do I say, yeah, you treat us terrible Enough is enough. Yeah. And I think Arachne is such a powerful figure. And in Greek and Roman storytelling, we very rarely get strong female characters. Mm -hmm. And Arachne, she's such an incredible strong character because she is willing to speak the truth. Even though she knows that it's not going to end well for her. Speaking truth to power, weaving it into her artwork. Like, I love that she's using art and like yeah. using a woman's craft like what was thought to be as women's work raising it into an art form and raising it into an art form of protest yeah such like so many great ideas such a beautiful entertaining fun deep and meaningful also story yeah all for our 
etymology, etymology. (laughs) Totally makes it worth it that we're doing an episode based on a stupid joke that I made that is just wordplay. I would not have imagined that this is where we would end up. I thought it was going to be much more lighthearted and fun than that, which it still is fun. And anything we do, almost, almost anything. We've done plenty of episodes about death and they were all still lighthearted. So yeah, yeah. I feel comfortable saying this. Anything we do will have a a bit of lightheartedness to it. Interesting thing that I uh, thought of when you were talking about relating it to like people's relationship to authority. I found an article as I was doing research for this, like several listeners fell out of their seats onto the floor when they heard that I did some research for this podcast. Like Jeff did research? I found an article called Athena and the Contest of Arachne, written by Catherine Sell, which was really interesting. I read the entire thing. I'm not going to read the entire thing or go into lots of the stuff she talked about. But in the beginning, giving an overview of the story, and she talks specifically, she talks about lots of different versions, but kind of some of the biggest ones are Ovid and Virgil. Um, She talks about book six of Ovid's Metamorphosis. It's kind of the, the most built out tale. Um, and it's also like one of the earliest versions that they can find, yeah. which as a side note, is kind of interesting because Ovid, Virgil, they were Roman. And this is thought to be a Greek myth, but like scholars kind of think that it was sort of like a late addition to the canon of Greek mythology because they haven't found like very many statues or pieces of pottery or other things that depict Ooh. this story yeah. in Greek in the in the Greek artifacts, but all the there's plenty of it in like the Roman things, like metamorphoses and, and other things. But they all agree that it's like it has features of a story that are like very very Greek. So they like don't doubt that it's Greek in origin. They just think it's really interesting that they haven't been able to find much about it in Greek art when it is much more present in Roman art. But that's not the point of what I was going to say with this. The point I was going to say they talk a little bit about. Catherine Sell in this article um, is talking about what the whole point of Metamorphoses was. Uh-huh. And it says, um, you know, so Metamorphoses, it was main purpose was recording classical myths of transformation. Um, so the article says, along with recording classical myths of transformation, Metamorphoses has the ambitious project of describing the history of the world from its formation to the deification of the Roman sovereign Julius Caesar. Mm. Which in the context of what you just said is really fascinating to me that that is... Mentioned like like it does tie this directly to a political leader who was so powerful and so you know in some ways beloved but in many ways not because yeah. again his friends got together to murder him um like yeah. he he became a god you know what I mean yeah and then other emperors from then on out too like were basically gods on earth yeah and many most behaved very badly just like these gods in ancient greek and roman myth yeah so it's like man yeah that I, again i haven't read this whole thing but it's like i want to read it all, all the metamorphoses through that lens and see what type of things uh, come out of it all to say and that's the story of how we got arachnids yeah as a name for uh spiders yeah it is really really great but that's kind of like here's a story about the origin of the spider but it's like a very epic tale yeah another thing from this article that i wanted to share again in this kind of overview section at the beginning talking about what one of the things that we mentioned where you know uh, the one of the main points of this is to talk about hubris like warning against hubris and blasphemy from challenging the gods one thing i thought was interesting about it too though was the author says the story depicts the severe wrath of athena a warrior maiden goddess who like other olympians is not immune to feelings of jealousy and spite yeah Athena's jealous wrath is well documented in other myths. During the Trojan War, 
The goddess sided with the Greeks after Paris elected Aphrodite as the most beautiful goddess in a contest among several goddesses, which I just found so delightful because like we had just covered this on the podcast yeah. like not too long ago. It was destined that this episode had to be delayed until after we could have told the story of the Trojan War yeah, and Athena and, and all of that. Just beautiful. And also to your point about the origin of the word arachne, there's a really great part of this article that said the myth may also have been an etiological function, as it's believed by some to explain the origin of spiders. From the name arachne, Greek for spider, comes the modern scientific term arachnid, which is used to refer to spiders as well as scorpions, mites, and ticks. Which I'm including because it's a perfect segue to one of our next stories that we're going to be talking about, which is Scorpio. I'm excited. The scorpion. This is a super short one. I couldn't find any good, long, built-out versions of this story it's talked a lot about in lots of different writings like Ovid talks about it but it's like just mentioned like super quick you're like oh yeah everyone knows what this this whole thing that happened one of the most interesting ones that seemed more like a story than them just saying like oh here's the summary that we all know of this story that had happened talks about orion and again it's so interesting how it relates to the story that we just read in several ways one of which being that scorpions are arachnids but set that aside for now <laughs> so in this story Orion was this like great hunter and he went off to go hunting in the company of Artemis and Leto. And he himself got a little bit cocky and he was like, you know what? I'm such a good hunter. I'm just going to go out here and I'm going to kill every single beast that there is on Earth. And wow. in that moment, in her anger, Earth or Gaia, not wanting all of her beautiful creatures to be destroyed, sends up a gigantic scorpion that then stings Orion. And kills him. And then Zeus, because Artemis and Leto were like, oh my gosh, our friend, our hunting buddies died, <laughs> decides to put Orion into the sky along with the scorpion that killed him as a memorial of him and his like greatness as a hunter, but also to commemorate kind of, commemorate is not the right word, but to depict what had happened, which was he was a great hunter, got a little too great, got a little too, again, prideful and full of hubris <laughs> that he ended up getting himself killed by a giant scorpion as earth protected herself. And so this is really interesting too, because it was really hard to find this story in actual like sources. Yeah. Like, so this was from um, the Greek poet Hesiod, his account. And like I said, it's in like Ovid and Virgil both wrote about it, but it's really hard to find those stories because again, it's like just this tiny little summary, but there are millions of websites out there that are like astronomy and astrology websites that yeah. talk about this because like when we think of orion we don't think of the character from greek mythology even though we all kind of know that he is like we think of orion's belt the galaxy lies on orion's belt <laughs> you know like as this astrological thing which so you got the scorpion up there which we we gotta go there talking about a little bit of astrology because in astrology scorpio is one of the zodiac right yeah not only is one of the zodiac but it is considered as governing the period from October 24th to November 21st, which also happens to be the time period in which Katrina was born. I'm the most important Scorpio in your life. That was a that was a joke because I know yeah, that Jeff my son has, is yeah. also a, <laughs> is a Scorpio and my sister's a Scorpio. A lot of scorpions in this family. I feel I feel like you just included me in your family and that feels good. You are. You are family. All right. So those are kind of the two big ones. And by two big ones, I mean one really big one and another one that is really not very big, but well known um, with Arachne and 
Scorpio, which again, it's like Scorpio comes from, that's the Latin word for Scorpio, which comes from the Greek, which is Scorpius, which is where Scorpion comes from and where the astrology name comes from and all that. Also fascinating that Scorpion is an arachnid. This is reminding me that I want to do more episodes of star, star fables. Yeah, that would be really cool because, as I'm sure you're going to say too, like there are all these ones that are like, you know, Greek, Roman myth, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But like different cultures around the world have really, really cool stories about these stars. Yeah. And the things that go on with them. Like we've done one on, we did the Tanabata Festival yeah. last July when it happened, 7-7, seven, seven, seventh day of the seventh month, which is like a super fun story about why the stars are the way they are and personifying certain celestial bodies and all that. Yeah. And with Orion, because we've talked about like the Pleiades before, um, yeah. like the seven sisters. And like lightly, we've talked about them and like the moon and then some of like Venus and like other planets that are they, they look like traveling stars. We've talked a little bit about that. But like Orion is another star constellation that shows up in different areas of the world as a grouping of stars of note. Mm -hmm. Obviously, since different cultures are picking and choosing which stars go into a group because like there is no clear line or divide yeah. like up in the sky. So, you know, they're, they more or less have some of like the same stars, but Orion is one where apparently there is a depiction of it back during like the Neolithic period in oh, wow. West Germany, where the stars are like drawn out on a cave wall. And so obviously mm. They had been noticing that as an important star cluster of note. Yeah. And I mean, that's just super fascinating that, you know. Yeah, that is fascinating. How long people have been looking at the stars and keeping track of them. Right. And it's fascinating because you said it like depicts like basically Orion, right? Yeah. Which the thing that I think of, and again, this is just uh, wild and baseless speculation on my part, as is 97% of the things I say on this podcast, like it. It's easy to see, like when you hear it explained that it is a human shape, like that is really easy to see. Whereas like, you know, you've got like Ursa Minor, Ursa Major, like these are bears. It's like, no, we call them the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper because they look not like bears. They look like little spoons and big spoons, but they're not snuggling, which is sad. Um, but, you know, but like it looks like a human and like we're humans. We see human shapes and human faces in like everything because that's how our brains are wired to recognize the human face in the human form. Yeah. Because of our like social nature and stuff like that. So it's like, you know, I wonder if that has something to do with it. I'm sure, sure some psychologists uh, and astrologists have gotten together and yeah. written some, you know, I mean, not very well researched papers on it that we could read if we wanted to. I know in the constellation for Orion, the kind of key part, I mean, one is it has one of the brightest stars in the sky and so that kind of like draws the eye but don't you dare say the name of it three times beetlejuice no <laughs> stop beetlejuice we don't need that kind of trouble today <laughs> and then there's the belt the because they are three stars that are really close together um i mean then i think it's like his sword also has three that are really close together as well mm -hmm. um but then the shield is like a cluster, I want to say it's like 12 or something, stars that all kind of look like they are like in line with each other. And so yeah. like Orion is one that it has a lot of distinctive features because it's it looks like so many stars clustered together in a really specific way. Yeah. And so like that one, it's kind of clear how it draws the eye towards it. 
But yeah, like we look for patterns and if it helps us like navigate, especially like if it Mm. is helping us to navigate the landscape. Right. You're going to remember stories for the shapes easier. Yeah. Than just like, you know, trying to name all of the stars and whatnot. So absolutely. Yeah, that's so interesting. Not related to the stars because that's not what this episode is about. Fine. Okay. Let's not get off track here. That is another episode. There could be a whole episode. So we had entomology, etymology, mythology, right? We still have some more to go where there are bugs that name origins come from mythology. Katrina, this may come to you as a shock, but scientists are huge nerds. (gasps) What? And they often like to show off how smart they are and how well-read they are. So there are hundreds upon hundreds of bugs whose scientific, you know, names, the species names, genus names, whatever, are named after mythological figures. Like there's like Agamemnon beetles. There's all sorts of things. Oh yeah, like Hercules beetles. Yeah, but so the Hercules beetle is one that it's like, it is big and it is known for being able to like lift very heavy things. That one makes sense. Yeah. That one is kind of interesting because like the name is somewhat related to something about the bug. But there's this one guy in particular where there's just all these moths. There's tons of moths that have names from Greek mythology, but they nothing about the moth is related at all to that creature. It's just kind of like this guy had to name so many moths so quickly that he was just like, yeah, you know, picked up his like copy of Metamorphoses or whatever. Oh, that's probably lame. wasn't Metamorphoses because he did the Greek names, but you know, like the Odyssey, and he's just like, okay, what's the next name to come up? Agamemnon, perfect. Which is disappointing. Yeah, that's lame. But but there are some that do have cool origins behind them and i found one that i almost guarantee that someone listening to this podcast there's not a person listening to this podcast with almost 99.99 percent surety that has heard this before because i found an origin for the name dragonfly that comes from romania oh from a romanian folktale i'm excited and one of the reasons why i so confidently feel that people haven't heard this was because I found references to it through like some weird, you know, those chains that you get into. It wasn't yeah. like a Wikipedia chain. It was like a scholarly article chain. Oh, where like better than a Wikipedia this, chain. <laughs> yeah. It makes me sound really cool and really smart, but it's like, this is not something I do very often because whenever I do it, I go into these like really weird chains and I end up just like on Wikipedia, you know, you go into search, uh, you know, who Daphne was. And next thing you know, you're, I don't know on, about some anime from the 1960s. Um, but so I was following this chain of like references to references to references. And one of the references that actually contained the story that I wanted to tell rather than just like summarizing it and talking about it was a like doctoral dissertation uh-huh. by Eden Emmanuel Surratt or Sarro. I don't know if it's French and I have to not say the T in 1958. And it was so hard to find. I had to request a copy of this through like interlibrary loan of my university and wait like weeks for this to come. Yeah, yeah. But it was so worth it. But it was like so hard to track this down that that's one of the reasons why I feel like probably no one has heard this before. I'm so impressed. I was pretty proud of myself for the depth I went to fulfill a promise based on a joke that, again, was just for the wordplay. (laughs) You're like, no, I'm doing it. I'm going to get an interlibrary loan from my university to make this episode that I joked about making. Right. Which, you know, we didn't have to do because the story of Arachne is substantial enough that that could have been it. And I think people would have been satisfied. But we like to 
go above and beyond our listeners' expectations. Usually we do so with the boundless, the boundless stupidity that we display in front of everyone. Indeed. But today we're doing it with our dedication to the research and something else we're known for. Dedication to the bit. (laughs) So this book, did I say what the book was called? I don't know, girl. The the, the thesis. So this thesis, the title is Folklore of the Dragonfly, a Linguistic Approach. Yay. By Eden Emanuel Sarot, or Sarat, or something. When was this written? It was written in 1958. Woo! It's been a minute. Yeah. So in this dissertation, there is a chapter that is called Names of the Dragonfly in Romania. And in this, the author talks about how they've found a couple of stories. This is the more interesting one about the origin of the dragonfly. Not only the origin of... So this story, why I'm choosing for this, is not only the origin of the dragonfly, as far as like how the dragonfly came to be. It's one of those kind of like tales, like yeah. the story of Arachne, like how spiders came to be. But this is also like about the word yeah. dragonfly and how it like relates to the story. So, well, okay. I say dragonfly, but that's a lie because it's actually the origin of the Romanian name for it, which is devil's horse, which again. Yes, the devil. We love the devil and stories about him on this podcast. We love mythological and folkloric stories about the devil on this podcast. That's what I will say. That is my stance that I'm taking. And also, like, I enjoy that we're not just honoring, like, the English name for an animal, but, like, that it has another name in a different place. And that they named their dragonfly or, like, their devil's horse after one of their stories. Which, if you know anything about Romanian. I don't. Which you may not even know that you know something about Romanian. Like Dracula? Mm. Transylvania is in Romania. And so the devil's horse is Calul Dracului. Oh, because Dracul is dragon. Yeah. Oh. So it's the devil or the dragon. So like, yeah, dragon is like devil related to the devil and then horse. I'm assuming that's what Calul is. I don't speak Romanian. I do know someone that speaks Romanian. And I thought about reaching out to them to ask them how to pronounce these things and stuff like that. But then I didn't. So did I really go above and beyond for this episode? Did you really commit to the bit? I don't know. Now, now I question everything. Yeah. It, it is up for debate at this point. <laughs> so there is this Romanian story, which is called, Why is the Dragonfly Called the Devil's Horse? And the story goes a little something like this. It seems that in olden times... There was continuous strife between God and the devil. Yeah. Which is a much better way to start a story than once upon a time. (laughs) God was, of the two, more peacefully inclined than the other. God thought that, you know, like the devil might become better behaved over time. Like, so he let the devil kind of, it says, play the game. (laughs) Like the game of what? Like tempting (laughs) souls to their eternal doom and torment. I don't know. God's like, oh, let him have his fun. He let him play the game as long as possible because he thought the devil was going to start behaving himself a little better. Adorable. But what can you expect from the devil? That's what it says. (laughs) He is what he is, and neither good nor bad treatment will change him. And so it was proved even to God. And so God waited a very long time to see the devil cool it, (laughs) calm down, chill out. But as soon as God gave the littlest bit to the devil, granted any little request or, or 
you know, made any concession to the devil at all, the devil was right back like asking for something else and something else and something else. And then God's like, oh my gosh, you know what? So soon after this pattern of bad behavior on the part of the devil, God realized, you know what? There's nothing that can be done about this guy. He's not going to change his ways. And so God armed his entire host of angels and gave each one of them a beautiful horse to ride on. And so one morning at dawn, we ride at dawn, said St. George, who was riding among them. And he was leading this army of uh, horsed angels. Horsed angels. (laughs) Angels mounted on horses. Yes, no, I assumed. And like I said, St. George was at the head of this and they started to fight with the devil. And after a while, St. George, who rode the horse, wondrously beautiful horse, so well that like people were like, whoa, amazed, St. George, he's the bomb at horse riding. Suddenly, he felt that his horse, instead of like going forward and kind of like charging into the battle, his horse started backing up. Mm. And he's like, what is going on? And then instead of like going out and attacking, you know, Satan and his hosts, St. George found himself just like back in his host of angels on their horses. And the the horses that he was running back into started like following the lead of St. George's horse because they're like, he's the leader. His horse is so wondrously beautiful. We should do what that horse is doing. Like they know what's going on. And so all of these horses started riding backwards and hitting the other horses around them. And suddenly God is like, this ain't good. So he yells down. The voice of God comes down and he says to St. George, basically like, get off of your horse. It's been bewitched by the devil. And so St. George is like, well, if this horse has been bewitched by the devil, then let it be the devil's own. And he jumps off of it. And so it happened that scarcely had that horse made three steps when it changed into a flying insect, which we upon this earth call the devil's horse. And then we in English call it the dragonfly, which, so I said that it's the origin of the Romanian word, which it is. And it is also supposedly by extension, the origin of the English word, because like we talked, we mentioned before, Dracul, Dracula, whatever it's dragon. Yeah. And so dragon's horse, instead of we drop the horse thing, because we don't know the story. We're like, oh, it's this flying thing. And they call it this thing that means dragon. So it's the dragon's fly yeah and saint george was known to have like defeated dragons yes and that is exactly that is exactly another one of the points the the legend of saint george is like the most famous thing that he had did was like the story of saint george and the dragon so there was already this association with saint george and a dragon and so yeah because of that they dropped the horse it was super easy jump to be like saint george dragon dragonfly got it that's what this is it's a dragonfly which I don't know, maybe it's just because I grew up with it, but like that does seem like an appropriate name for that creature, you know? I mean, and especially like uh, dragonflies are one of those creatures that were, they were really difficult to identify like where they came from because they have like a nymph stage. Oh, we're back to nymphs. Nymphs. No more nymph erasure. <laughs> erasure. They have like, they have these different stages that, you know, they live half of their life or the majority of their life in the water as like little swimming insects before they metamorphosize into uh, <laughs> connections, <laughs> connections it, into what we recognize as dragonflies. And so they're one yeah. of those creatures that like live in like a liminal space or they seem a little mystical because they would 
seemingly appear out of nowhere mm-hmm. where, you know, like with frogs, people wouldn't see tiny little baby infant frogs, you know, hatching from eggs or whatever, because that's not how that works. Uh, and so frogs would just... That would be adorable if it were, Yeah, though. it would. But frogs just kind of appear, yeah. just like are, and dragonflies are much the same way where they just seem to like appear to be like born and they are they're like they're a hefty insect Mm -hmm. like they seem like they shouldn't be able to fly much like the bumblebee yeah it's like you should not be able to lift yourself up with those paper thin wings but you can so i didn't like fully clarify how we went from romanian to english with the word dragonfly but the author does talk about how she thinks this likely occurred and that is because you know so you have romanian drac is dragon in romanian and so then there's also a term in german drachenhuer which i don't know what that means but that came from the romanian drac right and a hot take that this author makes is that since the germans are usually transmitters of folktales rather than originators so she's making the argument that English got the term from the German term. Mm-hmm. But then she's saying that because the Germans are usually transmitters of folktales rather than originators, that probably, perhaps, the English name dragonfly came from the Romanian legend by way of German. Do we know if this author is Romanian? No, you said that she's French. I don't know if she's French or not. She has a French sounding name. Yeah. I know absolutely nothing about okay. this person. Be- I just think that that's so interesting that she's saying, oh, Germans, they don't create. They they only transmit. Because that sounds like a very, um, that strikes me as wrong. Because any cultural group is capable of creating folktale mm. and myth and transmitting it or adding to it. So it sounds like a very dismissive thing to say about like a country to then claim that like oh like romanians are much better at creating at being creative and coming up with their own folk things as opposed to german people who are not it's like that's an interesting way to throw shade yeah which i thought the same thing as you i was like uh i i don't know how accurate that claim is to say that they're like the transmitters more than originators because again it's like as we've talked about so many times on this podcast, it's a very tricky thing to talk about like the origin of folktales to begin with because they're just constantly like mixing with one another in interesting ways and they're forming new things and it's based on other things, but it's taking different elements and combining them or, you know, like changing them. So it's like, even when you're originating a folktale, you're really more changing something that had already existed and it's like impossible to trace it back. You can go back to the earliest one, like versions that you can find that chain for, but... So I do feel that takes away a little bit of credibility from the author, but still a super cool story. Yeah. And yeah, and it's not to say like, I mean, I don't know, like the English and the Germans had much more of a close and direct connection historically than English and Romanians. And there was something she brought up. I'm skipping a lot of this stuff because again, it's a like a doctoral dissertation. So it's kind of boring for most yeah. of it. But there was also like a term in Belgium um, that was kind of similar that was kind of like dragonfly that could have then been transmitted to the English. And again, uh, who, it may have came from Romanian generally, or it may not even have come from the Romanian at all. It may come from another thing that we have no idea for. But it cannot be dismissed that the Romanian word dragon's horse then goes into dragonfly. And the similarities are pretty strong. That was awesome. And I'm so glad that we got to bring the devil into this episode. There was one more thing that this author did say that I wanted to bring up, even though I just like 
put her credibility into doubt. Which maybe don't include that part. Maybe do. I don't I, know. I will see what happens. So the author of this dissertation, in her conclusion, ends it in a way that I think is absolutely brilliant and beautiful and relevant to the subject matter of our podcast, where she says, there's a tendency to care less for facts than for fairy tales, to care more for hearsay than for observation, which again, this is almost falling prey to that thing that I don't like, which is like equating fairy tales and folklore to untruths. But I don't think she goes as hard into it as makes me super mad and uncomfortable. Misprints and mispronunciations and approximations happen. Moreover, vocabulary transcends experience. For one has never seen a phoenix or a fawn, even though we have seen dragonflies, but not dragons. That was my aside, not hers. And sometimes in trying to explain the derivation of a word with several possible etymologies, the linguist is like the farmer who went fishing in a stream abounding in dragonflies and found himself confronted with a dilemma. If a dragonfly alighted on his pole, it meant that the fish would not bite. If he injured the dragonfly, it meant that he would have bad luck. So basically describing there is like you have this whole problem of like if you just take at fact, you know, the folk etymology of the word, it's not great reflection of you as like an academic. But also if you try to just like swat it away and swat it down, like that's also not going to look that good on you either. So it's like, what do you do in that situation? You have to find a way to like embrace it in some way while also being able to like keep your distance from it, which I thought that was like, again, using a story about a dragonfly to illustrate that was just beautifully done. And then the final paragraph, again, absolutely beautiful, is as follows. Although one name may survive in one environment and not in another, thus giving rise to the horde of local appellations, folk names have a habit of taking root and spreading. People move about, exchange ideas occasionally, and more often, because we are more or less alike, The same outstanding characteristics of many animals conjure up identical pictures in minds and in human imaginations. So I thought that was a beautiful summary, not only of, you know, this person's work in this dissertation about the linguistic approach to the folklore of dragonflies, but also this episode and what we do on this podcast, where we talk about how we're attracted to things that for whatever reason are interesting to us, unknown to us, that have this inherent conflict in them, those are things that that we, for whatever reason, latch onto, right? And so while it may be hard to, sh- to really prove, like, we, like with the dragonfly, where this came from, whether it came from Romanian, where it came from German, like, or whether it, in these different languages they all emerged on their own, like, it's hard to say. But we can't help but like take in the stories that we find the most interesting to us and then we exchange them with other people and then that influences the way that other people think about it. And, you know, just like folktales and folklore is like working in the exact same way. We're hearing different stories. We're sharing these different things. We are having similar experiences. So we're coming up with similar stories from nowhere. And all of these things are getting mixed together and spread around based on what attracts us, what reflects our culture, what reflects our values. And they get so intertwined with one another, it becomes impossible to go back and to find, like someone wants to scientifically, like what is the origin of this word? And it's like, you just can't do it because of all of these factors coming together. And I just think that's really beautiful. And what's beautiful and fun about folklore because you can never do too much study on it because there's always different ways of looking at things. There's always more ways that we're, more stories that are similar or different or doing interesting things that we can go to and talk about and that are going to just delight us in different ways than they did even when you know they were being told and recorded however many years ago that it was. 
thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar This is... A story of a girl who... Oh. Stop. Beetlejuice.